Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with James Haddon, Senior Director of Development and External Communications at the Museum of Us in San Diego. We discuss the multifaceted process of decolonisation and the process of changing the museum's 40-year-old name. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. James, it is absolutely lovely to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Kelly, for having me. I'm really looking forward to our chat. So am I. But first, icebreaker questions, as always. James, I know that you're a regular listener to the podcast as well, so you kind of know what's in store for you. What talent would you most like to grow and develop? I would really like to improve my ability with languages. I just, that's something that I've tried over time and have not been really very good at keeping up. And someday in retirement, I'd love to live abroad. And so I really feel like I don't want to be one of those Americans living in a country that, you know, refuses to speak any other language but English. And so I'd like to work on that. Yeah, I always say, yeah, that is that Brit abroad. For, for us, I always call it that yeah. Brit abroad um, thing where you go, okay, well, I'm going to go and retire to Spain, but I'm never going to learn a single word of Spanish. I'm just going to speak English the whole time. It's, yeah, it's not the right thing to do. What language, have, what have you tried or would you, what would you like to learn? So I, I did kind of that requisite year or two of, of high school French in, in the United States, which I didn't really learn much of anything. In college, I studied German. And in my graduate program, we actually were required to have uh, be able to translate in a foreign language. So I actually, for a period of time, could read German. I I wasn't a conversational knowledge of the language, but I could translate uh, it. The German has left me, basically. Uh, So (laughs) what I've what I've been working on now, and I just started it in pandemic, and please don't ask me to, to show it off because I'm not ready for that. Uh, I've, I've trying to learn um, some Portuguese. I really love Portugal, and, um, but Portuguese, the, the pronunciation is really difficult for me. I don't find it natural at all. Okay. It's interesting you mentioned German, actually, because we did French and German at school. And you could choose which one you went on and did for your GCSEs. And I chose German because it was the easier language because it felt because it was quite masculine. Mm-hmm. It felt more similar to the British language. Yes. And so I found it easier to say. And that's why I went with German. But it has left me as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been on the Duolingo app. Um, I started du- doing Duolingo and learning Spanish in lockdown. And I've, I've been really consistent. So I've done it every day. I think I'm on like a 190 day streak at the moment. I am on 390 Whoa. of a streak of Portuguese. <laughs> we should friend up on there. I'll hook, I'll find you. I have been amazed at myself, but it does make it easy. It's not a long period of time. And I do feel like it's okay for, you know, me to pick it up for 10 minutes and it's Yeah. I love that. Oh good. Okay. Well, I will find you on there and we'll hook up and we'll we'll spur each other on to learn our languages. Okay, next one. Um what's the worst movie that you've ever watched? I will say it's the worst in some ways, but I 
I love it. It's one of those movies that I love, but it, it's that Flash Gordon that was done in the 80s, I think. Boom. <laughs> and, and I really love the movie, but it was, you know. It's not, it's not aged well. Yeah, but I, I, I loved it, but it, I kind of loved, hated it, yeah. So that, that's one of those movies, it's so bad, it's so good. Yes. Yeah, I, I love Flash Gordon. I think that's a great film. I might, I might need to watch that now. Okay, um, next one. If you could be in the Guinness World of Records, what record-breaking feat would you attempt? Oh, that's, that's really a tough one. It would have to do with travel. You know, I think it would be um, places visited or something. You know, I know that's really kind of tough to do, but I... I'm really obsessed with travel. And so it would be something having to do with travel. All right. That's cool. I was thinking something eating for me. Well, and that was my kind of backup one that I almost said was around pasta because, uh, but then I think of, oh, the the process of eating it for those eating challenges always seems so awful. And, and it would probably make me not ever want to eat pasta again. And so that's why I switched over, but I also had an initial urge to to choose eating pasta or some kind of Italian food. <laughs> a couple of years ago, our, um, my agency, Rubber Cheese, did a um, we did a big year long charity fundraiser, and one of the challenges that we did was to try and break the world record for eating a can of cheddar cheese Pringles in the fastest amount of time. And we did, and we we did we did break the world record for that. I, not myself personally; I was dreadful at it. But I have never eaten a cheese Pringle ever since. Ruined cheese Pringles for me for life. So, all right, James, what is your unpopular opinion? So, my unpopular opinion, which will be more unpopular in the United States probably than the UK, is that um, our crispy bacon is an abomination. That our idea of taking streaky bacon and and essentially nuking it until it's just a piece of you know ash is horrible and so i just don't understand why we insist on doing that to bacon it seems like you know such a bad thing to do for lovely pigs who gave their lives for this delicious meat and um we just shouldn't do that to bacon I'm with you. I don't understand that. Uh, the whole like making it shouldn't be like rock hard, should it? That's not. Yeah. That's not nice. Yeah, it shouldn't shatter when you when you go into to bite it. <laughs> and so I find when I'm in England, I have a much better <laughs> experience <laughs> with bacon uh, because th- they don't um, assume that I want it. Um, well, sometimes because if they hear, you know, hear me speak and know I'm American, assume that I want it that way but um it's like no just prepare it the way you would normally prepare it all right come to the UK it's all about the good bacon selling selling the UK well a bacon sandwich in the UK is a wonderful thing completely agree with you on that one James right let's get into the good stuff okay so James you are at the currently senior director of development and external communications at the museum of us in San Diego um, tell us a little bit about your career. How did you get to that point? So it's been a long and um, varied route. And so I'll try to do the Cliff's Note version of it. But I, I kind of wanted to start off by saying I was one of those students growing up 
that loved so many different things to study. You know, I loved architecture. I loved art. I loved the built environment. I loved archaeology. And so I was one of those students. I couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to do when I went to college, but I felt like I needed to make a decision. And I started right away with aerospace engineering and immediately in the first week or two of that said, no, this isn't going to be a good idea. Changed my major very quickly to architecture. And so I did a bachelor's degree in, uh, I went to Texas A&M and, and their program was a four-year undergraduate degree called environmental design, which then moved to a master's degree in architecture. And uh, so I did and completed the four-year bachelor of environmental design degree. And I really loved that degree. And, but at the end of it, I realized that <clears throat> I would be a very mediocre architect and the world didn't need another mediocre architect. And so I was at a crossroads. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't very employable with that degree and thought like many people will do, oh, I'll just, I'll just get a master's degree. And I really loved archaeology. And so I decided I would get a master's degree in anthropology, specialization in archaeology. Again, I'm sure my parents and family were like, that's not a great decision in the job field. And so why are you doing that? But I followed my heart and I was glad that I, I did that. And in my anthropology program, my archaeology program, I, um, I worked with the Institute of Nautical Archaeology at Texas A&M, which is very famous and um, did my field work in Port Royal, Jamaica, which is a 17th century English port city that sank into what is now Kingston Harbor. And our, our program had been excavating there for about 10 years. So really very interesting work that I really loved doing. Um, but I also, in that process, decided that a PhD in an academic life for me in archaeology or anthropology also wasn't really meant for me. And while I was doing my, my graduate work, I was invited to be a graduate assistant at an art gallery on campus. And the curator of the gallery wanted a, a graduate assistant who had really good research skills and also had good design skills. And he said, um, I would love an architecture student, but they just don't have time, and especially in their master's program, um, to work away from the studio. And I would love an anthropology student because they're really great at research, but they don't have any design background. Uh, so he kind of reached out to both departments. Well, both departments knew me and said, oh, we have the, we have the unicorn for you. The perfect fit. <laughs> the perfect fit. <laughs> and so I went over and I met with him and he was delighted. And I started and that's where I started to realize that a role um, for myself in a museum was possible, that I had some really good skills that would work in the field. So that kind of lit the fire for me with um, the professional idea that I could work in museums. So when I, finished, um, when I finished graduate school, I had moved to Phoenix to be with my partner, who, um, who had finished his graduate program a little earlier and already had a job. He was an engineer. He had a sensible job. And um, and moved to Phoenix, and I was hired by the Arizona Historical Society to head a an exhibits project that they were doing. They were opening a new museum, and I worked for them for about five and a half years, and it was really invaluable experience. I was very young, and I didn't realize at the time the kind of 
amount of responsibility I was given, but people had just gave me a lot to do and project manage and deal with grants and all kinds of things. Um, really, really gave me a great foundation to work in the museum field. Great job. Uh, I didn't really want to spend the rest of my life in Phoenix. And I had occasionally come to San Diego on holiday, as many people in Phoenix do. It's hot in the desert and you you drive six hours and you're by the seaside and it's a very Mediterranean, lovely climate. So I wanted to move to San Diego. So I just quit my job. I moved to San Diego. My partner by that time was my ex-partner. He had a spare room and he very um, graciously said, you can stay with me rent-free. And so I, I loaded up, I moved to San Diego and I got a job at the San Diego Natural History Museum as their director of membership. There's a long story about that, but I won't bore you about that. <laughs> but um, so I was hired there and that was my first kind of work in the development realm. And my boss there's name was Ann Ladden and she was an amazing fundraiser and a, an amazing mentor. And she taught me so much. And I was there about four years and just kind of soaked in um, everything that she was doing. She was running this $30 million capital campaign to build a new wing. And I just kind of soaked all of that up. I took a little detour after that. I decided um, I wanted to try something outside the nonprofit realm. I worked in healthcare for nine years, um, which taught me that I really wanted to be back in museums. And when I made that decision, the very day that I made the decision that I wanted to get back into the museum field, I started looking online for jobs. I looked at what then was the San Diego Museum of Man, which is an anthropology museum, and that was my field of graduate study. And I had been to the museum, but the kind of the old version of the museum wasn't very exciting for me, but I thought, well, I'll see if they have a, a job. Well, they had a development manager job. And so I thought, I'll give it a try. I sent in my um, my materials and they called me right away and interviewed me. And in that studying up for the interview process, getting to know the museum actually before my interview, I realized that the museum was on a whole new direction from what it was. So suddenly I was really excited. I thought, oh, this will be a really wonderful place to, to work. I hope I get this job. And I, I got the job and then I've been at the museum since uh, 2013 and my role has grown over, you know, over time. And so now I'm heading the department that I first started. in. I love hearing how people's careers are so um, squiggly. There's a, yes. there's a great podcast in the UK called Squiggly Careers. I think it's Helen Topper that is the um, is the host of it. And it is fabulous. And it is all about, you know, these kind of weird little directions that we take mm -hmm. that bring us to the perfect place. Yes. Now, this is what I want to talk about. So you mentioned earlier that the museum was known as the San Diego Museum for Man. And I think that was it, was, it, it had been named that for over 40 years. So it's a really yes. long time. But now it's called the Museum of Us. What is it that prompted that change? And how has this come about that the museum has changed? Because there's quite a, a big story to this that I want to delve a little bit deeper into. Sure. So it's really interesting. We've done a bit of digging uh, on the history of the name 
First of all, the museum was founded in 1915 for the California Panama Exposition. We're located in, in Balboa Park, which was built for the, for the exposition. Um, its original name was not San Diego Museum of Man. Um, it was a very kind of bland name, you know, like California, San Diego Museum Association, or I'm, I'm drawing a bit of a blank on that actually now, but, but you know, in the 40s, um, it became the Museum of Man. And then later on, the San Diego was added to it too. So it had that name for quite a bit of time and was very, that name, when you came to the museum, it was one of those anthropology museums that you expect to see of that time period. It was about ancient civilizations. Come see exhibit on the Maya, come see an exhibit on ancient Egypt. Over time, and especially kind of beginning in the 70s, but you see it also in the 80s, there started to be a lot of kind of rumbling in the community about the name. And really a lot of, you know, a lot of this was tied to kind of the equal rights amendment um, things that were going on at the same time in the United States about language and how our language tends to be very patriarchal and um, the use of man in that sense of it being humanity. Uh, it's really an old use of the word, which really wasn't used anymore in everyday speech. You know, academics might use it, but in everyday speech, it wasn't. And so really in the late 80s, early 90s, there were even kind of petition drives that were submitted to the museum and said, please consider changing your name. We don't feel welcome with that name. It right. sounds a very patriarchal name, a very sexist name. And so please change it. And there were actually, the board considered it. At that time, there was a formal kind of membership that had to review those kinds of things. I think there was a vote that said, no, we're not going to change our name. But really, beginning in the 90s, um, there was a lot of talk about uh, changing our name. And so that's when it really started. And so in the last 10 years, when we really began changing what we do as a museum, which I think we'll probably talk about in a bit. We also really realized that that old name, the San Diego Museum of Man, didn't fit with what work the museum was doing now. There was really a brand disconnect. Okay, cool. So one of the things that I want to talk about today, and it's, I think it's, it's a really interesting subject, but it's also quite a challenging subject to talk about and discuss about how the changes that you've made but it's a it's about the decolonization initiatives that you've run can you tell us when when that started and what you've done to kind of facilitate that happening sure well it's a very long process and it will be an ongoing process for decades i mean you don't decolonize a hundred plus year institution and museums are in many ways deeply colonial structures and institutions so you just don't magically undo that. But I always look at a turning point really for me in our decolonizing work. It was, we were talking about it, as I said, I've been here since 2013, and we were talking about it when I started. Um, and I'm sure even before then, our, our director came in in um, 10 years ago, Micah Parson. And so, you know, this has been an interest of, of his for a long time. 
But really in 2017, we submitted a grant request to IMLS, which is the Institute of Museum and Library Services in the United States. It's a government agency. And we submitted a very large grant to formally start decolonizing practices at the museum. It's a $300,000 plus grant, and we were awarded it. Um, review committee was really thrilled to see the museum really want to tackle this in a formal kind of way. And it was essentially a pilot project for us to start working with the Kumeyaay community. And the museum and San Diego um, were all located on Kumeyaay land this whole land that was settled by Spanish and American settlers was the home of the Kumeyaay and continues to be the home of the Kumeyaay. And so there is a long history there. The cultural materials that we have, much of them are Kumeyaay materials. And so this grant really started that process for us to start building a relationship with the Kumeyaay community about the materials that we hold and to start um, really consulting with them in ways. And I'll talk, I'll really point to two pieces of really policy decisions that we made about the same time or as this process has gone. Uh, the first one was a policy on human remains where the board formally decided that we would not exhibit human remains without the consent of descendant communities. So we pulled any human remains that we had on display. And so that was one of the first steps. The second step, which is even a bigger step, is called the Colonial Pathways Policy. And what that, in a nutshell, it's a long policy. But what it does is it says that we will be consulting with um, descendant communities to see what materials that we should continue to hold. So if materials came into our holdings through any kind of colonial path, we will return those to the descendant communities. And that's a big deal in the museum world. And so those were some of the two key kinds of um, pieces of work. Now, since that time, the decolonizing efforts have expanded in every department, including my development department. We are finding ways to move forward in ways that embrace a decolonial paradigm um, to the work that we're doing. So it's an ongoing process, but I really look to that IMLS grant as one of the first steps. And then those two policy decisions that our board, and I can't kind of give enough um, kudos to our board for really taking a lead on that. And so a lot of work had to be done building a board that was ready to make those kinds of decisions. How did you go about engaging with the community to do this? Because that's, it's fabulous that you've, t that those steps were taken, absolutely the right thing to do. How do you then put that into practice? You know, how do you engage with the community to understand what they want you to do? That's a great question. There are a lot of different layers to that. Um, so one of the key parts of that is to start having indigenous and Native American people in decision-making positions on your staff. And so, for example, we have a director of decolonizing initiatives whose name is Brandy McDonald, and she's uh, Chalk's 
uh, Choctaw and Chickasaw. And she's part of the four member kind of senior executive team of the museum. So she is right in there with um, all the key decisions being made at the museum. There is also a past history of the museum with the Kumeyaay community that wasn't a good one. I mean, the, the Kumeyaay community looked at the museum, rightly so, as an organization that had their cultural patrimony and shouldn't have it and displayed it in ways that they weren't happy about. So we needed to start truth-telling about that in the exhibits that we have. And we also needed to apologize for that. And so, you know, our senior, um, our director, our deputy director, you know, our, so really our CEO and our deputy director went and have apologized for what we have done in the past and have really committed to changing those practices. But not surprisingly, those kinds of things are looked upon with a great deal of skepticism. So it takes action to start building trust. And so we're still building trust, but we've started and we're making progress. That's wonderful. Uh, and, and like you say, it's, um, it's not a quick fix, is it? It's something that's going to progress and change over time. How granular do you look at those decisions that you're making now in terms of, so for instance, if you have a, um, if there's a new exhibit that you'd like to showcase, do you consult with the community before that happens to make sure that they're happy for you to exhibit those, those artifacts? Like how, how, like, you know, how, how detailed do you go? So that's, that's really interesting because we've done a couple kind of pilots and tests, some kind of small um, work, for example, with our existing Kumeyaay exhibit. We were partially closed because of a seismic retrofit to our California Tower, which is a very famous icon. And, and during that time, we had to close our Kumeyaay exhibit. And so we thought this is a perfect time to kind of consult with the Kumeyaay community, which we were already doing, and, and at least ask what shouldn't be on display? Like, what should we at least take off of display that you don't want us to? So that that gave us kind of the first taste of, like, what what do we do and at least make this exhibit that is decades old, less problematic. Um, it still needs to change. But also during that process and during this first IMLS uh, grant, you know, we were really working with the Kumeyaay and finding out, well, what did they want us to do next? Like, what did they see this museum helping kind of elevate their voice? And they said, you, you need a new Kumeyaay exhibit. You are not talking about us in the way that we want to be presented to the world. And not surprisingly, you don't know anything about us. You, you were white scholars who aren't Kumeyaay. And so we just, in this last year, received a second grant from IMLS to actually work on the new Kumeyaay exhibit. And so we're really going to be trying to figure that out because it's that whole process because we want it to be a community-driven exhibit. We want the Kumeyaay community to tell us how their story should be told and to be a part of that. And not just like consulting occasionally, mm. but to be with it on every step of the way. Um, what's on display? What's on the design? Where does it go in the exhibit, in the museum? All of those kinds of things. And so 
when I say our decolonizing work is a process, it's a process. And sometimes it's messy and we make mistakes, but we're trying to learn how to do it correctly. And so we're still in that process. And what's the reaction been from the Kumeyaay community and then also, you know, other communities that would visit the, the museum? Like how, how have people responded to the changes that you've made? So I, I don't know. I, and I wouldn't want to speak for the Kumeyaay on, on what their, you know, impression is of what our work is. From what I see with um, the partnerships that we've been um, building through our IMLS work, there's also... NAGPRA work, which is another government type of work about the repatriation of of ancestors and associated grave goods. You know, it, it feels like trust is building. And so I'm, uh, I think that that means that, or is an indicator that there is some happiness about the work that's, that's, that's going, but I, I don't want to speak for them in, in, in any way. You know, I will give one example that I feel shows it really kind of impacted staff quite a bit. So we had a a visitor to the museum from the Maasai community, an ambassador from the Maasai community, and he was visiting and there was contact between our cultural resources staff and he wanted to come see what we might have from his community. And so he came in and our staff pulled everything that we, as far as we knew, were uh, Maasai materials. And the first question that we asked him was, should we have these? Like, should we even have these in, should we be stewarding these for for your community? And he said, yes, it's fine for you to have these. There's nothing that you have in your holdings here that you shouldn't have. But what you should be doing is caring for them differently. Um, you know, we use this very Western European sort of approach to stewarding materials. And so we wrap things in acid-free materials or sometimes different kinds of plastics. So I'm probably using the wrong terms. I'm not a, con- um, um, I'm not a conservator, but um, he said, th- and there was specifically a spear that he was looking at and he said, this needs, you really need to be um, rubbing this with lamb's fat, for example. And um, it's dead the way you're taking care of it. It it can't live this way. And so we started following the cultural care practices that he asked for us to do. And it's amazing how that spear changed. You know, suddenly it shines in a different way, you know, and it does feel like it's alive again. And so you know, from those kinds of reactions, you know, it feels like we're on the right track and that we're doing the right thing morally. There's so many layers to that, isn't there? When you start Mm -hmm. to engage with the community where these items have come from, like you would never have known that at all about that artifact. You just, you would never have, you wouldn't have read about that anywhere unless that man had told you about it. Yes. It's fascinating. And then it also means that I think, you know, if we at some point in time, put that item on display, then also we have a contact who we can talk to and say, how should it be displayed? What story should we tell about this um, item? And then we can also feel good about it being on display and not feel like we are doing harm or causing trauma to a community by putting it on display. 
So how does this, if we, if we just take a step back and go back to the name change, how have those things run in parallel with each other? Because they are in, intertwined, aren't they? They are very much intertwined. And I think, you know, we started kind of, again, bringing up this idea of a name change two years in 2018, we actually hired a firm to, to help us kind of start navigating the process around a name change, to have us kind of start testing names and all of those kinds of um, activities. You know, we wanted to engage stakeholders with the name um, and, and no one was kind of sure what a name should, you know, nobody had any name that just popped to their mind that seemed like a good one. But we knew we wanted to change our name. Also in those discussions, it was interesting because we were kind of told, look, don't change your name, though, until your name or your brand, until the experience in the museum is much different. You don't want there to be a disconnect between having a new name and then the visitor experience be very much different, not be very much different. And so... In the back of our mind, we kept thinking, okay, well, at some point we want to do this multi-million dollar capital campaign and completely reimagine um, the visitor experience to the museum. And we had engaged this firm to help us start planning for that and um, and had some really exciting plans around that. We, we still do. Um, but it, it will cost a lot of money to make happen. And that kind of capital campaign will take some years. We're not quite ready to do that yet. And so when we were thinking about um, changing our name, we kept thinking, okay, well, we've now gone out to the community starting in 2018 saying we want to change our name, but we're not quite ready to have a whole new visitor experience. How are we going to time this? This is really, this is hard to do. And we, at that, by that point in time, we had, it kind of narrowed down to three names that we were thinking about. And then the pandemic happened be honest, was part of the thing. And, and I think, like many institutions, we started looking at ourselves and saying, how do we come out of this as a better version of ourselves? And what can we learn from this time to make ourselves better? And we did a lot of self-examination. And we realized that as an institution, we were already so much different than what we were 10 years ago. We were embracing and really doing all this decolonizing work. We have an exhibit called Race, Are We So Different? where we really tackle that whole idea about systemic racism and white privilege and all of those kinds of things. And that had become the center point of our education programs. And uh, so we're doing all this anti-racism work. We were doing this decolonizing work. We were doing much more work in the social justice sphere than we were doing in the kind of traditional um, collecting of artifacts and showing artifacts of ancient civilization. And that old name is associated with those old activities. Mm -hmm. And we really realized that the old name didn't match what we were doing now. And it was causing a disconnect for people coming in. If you come in with that old name and you start seeing, even though we still have some exhibits that are, you know, that are older, but we have new exhibits as well. So there's kind of a mixture um, there's a bit of a disconnect there. And we suddenly realized that, no, we really needed to change our name. We had outgrown that old name, or maybe that's not right, the right word, but we weren't the same place as that old name was. And we really needed to change the name 
to be in line with the work that we were doing now. Yeah, even though, you know, in the sense of the visitor experience, it hasn't changed that much in terms of how you walk, you know, how you walk around the building. Actually, the initiatives that you have are so different from what they used to be. It was the right time to make that change. It's, It's interesting, isn't it, that the pandemic has kind of, one of the positives of it is that it's given people a little bit of time to sit back and kind of be static and look at what's already been achieved up until this point. Yeah. And I think it also gave us permission, you know, in our mind, we couldn't launch a new name without spending a huge amount of money, you know, and having everything, every sign redone and every graphic and, you know, a whole new website and all of those kinds of things. And so then when you think about, well, oh, that's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to make that a reality. Suddenly we realized during the pandemic, you know, people are probably going to forgive us if we don't do it in that way right now. Yeah. And so there's actually now um, our team was much reduced because of the pandemic. And so now I oversee development and marketing. And I think the staff had previously been, say, eight Um it depends how you count them. And, and now there's two of us. So there's me and Kelsey Pickert, who is just the greatest partner to have in crime, so to speak. Um, And, you know, we made it happen. We worked with a wonderful graphic designer named Caroline Good, who had worked with us in the past when we had been kind of working with stakeholder groups about the museum and things And um, we contracted with her and we figured out, you know, a way to launch a new name and new brand. It's a transitional brand right now because we wanted to kind of let the community get used to the fact that the old name is going away. But we did the first round in six weeks. Wow. (laughs) The board, um, the board voted to change the name at the end of June 2020. That's when they officially changed, picked the new name. Um, and we had graphics ready to go. Uh, we had hoped that we might be, be able to reopen in July. So we'd kind of given ourselves a July deadline to kind of launch it and we were ready to go, but, um, we weren't allowed to reopen at that period in time. And so we just kind of waited for a bit and then months went by and we weren't sure when we were going to be able to reopen and we weren't sure when should we announce the new name? And we finally just decided to do it in August, even though we weren't reopened. So we, we announced the name on August 2nd, the new name and had a front page local uh, news story about it. It ended up being picked up all over the world. The story went all over the world, the name change. And so then we had a brief reopening in September with, with the new name. It's interesting because we just installed the permanent sign on the exterior of the building in December. And when we posted that on social media, I think it suddenly sunk in to many people that we were serious that the name really changed <laughs> because people all of a sudden were like, Oh, you've changed your name. And well, yes, months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't believe how much you achieved in such a short space of time. And I'm laughing because having worked with cultural organizations before, we all know that things do take an awful lot of time to get signed off. So that's a yeah. massive achievement with just, you know, a team of two and your graphic designer. So uh, yeah, hats off to you. 
I'd like to ask that there will be in the UK, no doubt, and I know this podcast gets listened to uh, all over the world. Thank you, listeners. There'll be other museums that will be thinking about this or starting this process or, or trying to understand how they start this process. What would be your best advice to those museums that are considering going down this path? So I think one obvious one is for it not to be performative, for people to really think it through and to make sure that they are doing internal changes um, within their organization. Because if you haven't started that work internally, um, the external communities that you start working with can feel that and understandably don't want to be a part of that kind of tokenized process of being a performative process. Like they really have to understand that um, this is something that you're committed to. That's why I mentioned our board and our CEO earlier. Like this, this is a leadership shift and change that we have. And um, there also needs to be um, changes in leadership. You know, we have a board, which is, um, and I don't have the percentages right in front of me, but I think it's around half of people of color and and I think more women on the board than men. And we have Native Americans on staff. So you have to start making your institution reflective of your community if you expect to be able to have a conversation and work with the community that you need to work with. And I want to be really clear about saying we still have a lot of work to do in that. We're not where we want to be in that. But I think after a number of years now, at least people are seeing that we're committed to it and that we are making real structural changes. Thank you, James. I think this has been this has been such an interesting discussion and I've really respect how honest you've been about the process that you've gone through and the changes that you've made. Thank you. We always ask our guests about a book that they would recommend. Now it can be a book that you love. It can be a book that you've helped that's helped shape your career in some way. What have you chosen for us today? So I have chosen Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva. And I think it's a really brilliant book. And it's not a really long, long read. Um, And he writes in a way that's really engaging and easy to digest a lot of really kind of substantial ideas, but around um, philanthropy and the whole kind of nonprofit sector and how it's the colonial paradigm is deeply embedded in that. And that to start making changes in other systems, we're going to have to start making changes there. And he really approaches it from an idea of approaching it with an idea around indigenous healing and how philanthropy, um, if it changes in certain ways, can be a part of the healing process. And I just think it's a really brilliantly written book. And it's in a way that makes you think about those things differently. But I think also doesn't scare you like it inspires you but doesn't scare you I think a lot of these ideas are really scary for people because change can be scary and so sometimes you need to read about it in ways where you realize that this sort of community healing is good for us all 
when we help communities that have suffered and experienced trauma, it helps us all. Completely agree. Um, what a perfect book for this for this podcast. As ever, listeners, if you would like to be in with a chance of winning this book, if you head over to our Twitter account and you retweet this episode announcement with the comments, I want James's book, then you will be in with a chance of winning it. James, before we go, I want to just go back because there was a question that I wanted to ask that I completely missed off. Um, <laughs> you have reopened now in the US, yes. which is super exciting. It's it's really, it's so lovely to, to hear about positive reopening stories. What What's next for the museum in terms of the, the initiatives that you have running? So our big initiative is really around, um, I, I mentioned that, you know, even my department development and marketing are, um, is embracing um, decolonizing strategies. And so we have initiated this program called Membership on Us, which means for the price of a single day admission, you have membership to the museum for the rest of the year. And so for the price of daily admission, you can come back as many times as you want over and over during the year. And we've done away with that traditional membership structure, which is very embedded in this idea of if you can pay more, you you receive more benefits, you, you're treated differently at the museum, all of those kinds of things that are really antithetical to what the Museum of Us, which is about all of us, um, is about. And we want everyone to have a more equitable way of accessing um, the work that we do. And so we announced this new program just before we reopened. And we really think that it goes hand in hand with our new name, with the decolonizing work that we're doing. And we're really super excited about it. And the response has already been really off the chart. Really. Oh, that's really, that's excellent to hear. That's really, really excellent to hear. James, thank you. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. What I want to know, though, is next time you're in the UK, are you going to hit me up so that we can go for a bacon sandwich together? I definitely will. <laughs> I'll introduce you to my favourite place to get a good cup of tea. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.